0: Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everybody. Welcome back in to The Sitch with Grant Mitchell for episode number nine. Now, if you remember from last episode, or in case you forgot, I recently moved, so I'm in a new spot, but let me tell you, it feels amazing to be back on a regular schedule. Love being up here. Love interacting with you guys. Thank you so much to everybody that's leaving comments down below. I love conversing with you guys. If I come up across some hot topic or some opinion that you disagree with or that you agree with, let me know in the comments. I'm going to reply, be replying to all of them, and yeah, it's the best way that we can interact and build a community. Also, real quick, follow me on Twitter at Mile Mitchell and on TikTok at sports.g.g. That's at sports.g.g. If you want to see what I'm betting on, important information about games, news, headlines, all that stuff, very active on there. And I was nailing some picks in the Sweet 16 and the Elite Eight. During the Sweet 16, let's see, or no, the Elite Eight, I was. No, sorry. The Sweet 16, I hit seven out of eight games. I was thinking Sweet 16 meant Sweet 16 games, but 16 teams. So I was seven of eight in the Sweet 16, and then in the Elite Eight, I want to say I was only two for four, but add those together, what do you got? It's a pretty good return, and it's well over 50%, and that's all that matters. But no matter that, we got to move on to some really big news from around the college basketball world, and we're going to be talking about those Elite Eight games that I was just referencing. Now, it was a super entertaining round of basketball. If you missed out on it, I I feel bad for you because – Just great games all around, from top to bottom. It's sad that we're already down to just four teams, which means we only have two games left in the Final Four and then third in the National Championship. Feels like just a couple of weeks ago, hint, hint, because it was – there was games starting every twenty minutes, and now we gotta wait an entire week for games. Really sad, but hey, these athletes deserve it. They've been putting their bodies through the ringer so far. It's not easy to go out there and play like your life's on the line against really tough competition. Only have forty-eight hours rest and then go out and do it again. So shout out to everybody that's made it that th- this far, and shout out to everybody that's been a part of March Madness so far. It's been really great. Let's start off by talking about the first game. We're gonna go in time order here, so we're gonna start off with Florida Atlantic versus Kansas State. Now this was. This was a battle of the heavyweights that might not be heavyweights in name, but just based on how they've been playing... Heavyweights Florida Atlantic went 28 and three in the regular season. That was the t- tied for the second best record in America. Only Houston had a better regular season record. They'd improved to 34 and three if you count up all their postseason games. And so they were just firing on all cylinders, but they were going against a Kansas State team that looked like a team of destiny. They were red hot. Marquise Noel was quickly surging in the most outstanding player of the tournament odds. He'd been playing sensationally well. They'd had some crazy highlight moments, a couple of comebacks. So, this was really going to be a battle. And that's exactly what it was. Now, Florida Atlantic ended up winning 79 to 76. They were trailing for a good bit there, but they took the lead with six minutes left and they never gave it back. Keontae Johnson, Kansas State's leading scorer, fouled out, only scored nine points in the game. David Gasson, who had been really pivotal for them in a couple of games, especially defending Oscar Shebway, and then coming up with big plays on both ends against Michigan State. He also fouled out, so that really hurt them. Noel, who I was just singing his praises, he had 30 points, 12 rebounds, and five steals. But in my opinion, the best player in that game was Vladislav Golden, the 7-foot center for the Owls. He had 14 points, 13 rebounds, and he was really all over the place on offense and defense, coming up with offensive boards, easy rim runs, putbacks, defensive stands. He had it all cooking for him. And then while Noel had the better box score, Kansas State just hit this point where their offense became so, so heavily dependent on him. Everybody knew what was going to happen. It's kind of like... And I'm not comparing them in terms of skill set, but it was kind of like watching LeBron James on the 2018 Cavaliers or Luka Doncic on last year's Dallas Mavericks or James Harden on the Rockets pre-Russell Westbrook. The ball was going to his hand before he got over half court every possession, it seemed like. And they weren't scoring if he didn't score or if he didn't provide an assist to somebody. And. As great as he was, again, just sensational t- tournament out of this guy. If you missed it, he set the assist record against Michigan State with 19. That—that's a most assists in a single game in NCAA tournament history. Guy was bawling out of his mind. But as good as he was, it's just not a recipe for success. If you think back to what Kobe Bryant said about the way that James Harden plays, it's not, it doesn't work. It's not conducive to winning a championship. And this isn't a shot at Noel in any way because I don't necessarily think he wants to play that way, but Kansas State pretty much needed him to. They they were very hesitant to initiate any sort of offense without him, and they couldn't get shots to fall. Um, Big players who had stepped up, like I said, Gassan earlier, and then also Ishmael Massoud. He had 15 points in the round prior, but he couldn't knock down his shots. Keontae Johnson missed a lot of the first half of foul trouble and then ends up fouling out. It was just a tough situation to be in. (coughs) Excuse me. So shout out to Noel. Really gave it his all. wasn't enough. But we've got to talk about a Florida Atlantic. I don't want to bury the lead. What Florida Atlantic is doing is flat-out sensational. They had only made March Madness one time prior in their entire school history. And guess what? They didn't win a game in that. Every game they've won in this tournament has been a new record for most games won in March Madness. And now they are one win away from competing for the conference championship. This is a team that needed a game-winning layup with two seconds left against Memphis in the round of 64 to even advance. They were two seconds away from going home without a single win. They're from Conference USA. That's that's not a highly heralded conference. I know everybody loves to shit on the P5 schools, especially the Big Ten and the ACC and the Pac-12 even. Conference USA. Those aren't even comparable. Also, I will say it's pretty funny. The only school, the only conference that still has a program left in the Final Four is the ACC. Again, one of those lower tier Power Five schools. People would put that under the Big East, which isn't even a Power Five school. But we're going to, we'll get to that later. What Florida Atlantic is doing is incredible. What I love about them is they have such a large spread of ability and impact players. So when the defenses are matching up with them, it's very hard to rotate off of somebody. For example, if you want to trap somebody in the corner or if you want to you want to bring help and you're trying to hedge a screen, if you want to slide your defense to the strong side of the court, if you want to blitz whoever is the hot hand, any of these sort of common defensive adjustments, FAU just swings it around and they throw a skip pass and they've got an open man, and that open man can contribute. This is a team that goes nine deep minimum every time it plays. And they might only have one guy averaging double digits. Or maybe it's two. I think it's two players averaging double digits. But they've got so many people above seven, eight points. So anytime anybody on this team touches the ball, they are a very real threat to score the ball. And they've got some players that I've been very impressed by. Golden, who I was just talking about earlier, he's been so good for them. I I was watching this game with my grandpa, actually. We were watching this game in in his basement. And... What I said to him was, it's almost remarkable for me to see a seven footer who is at a school like FAU, and no disrespect intended, but again, it's not a highly heralded program. It's not a school that's known for going out and recruiting the best athletes. So when you see a seven footer like Golden on this team, you think he's there just because of his height. It's not the case. He's got a soft touch, he's got good feet, he's got in- defensive intelligence. He knows how to play the game. So, yeah, he's been really good. John L. Davis, another guy who's been good for them, start started off this tournament. and maybe it was later in the tournament. But, anyway, already in this bracket, he has made history by becoming the first player in March Madness history to put up at least 25, 10, 5, and 5 in a game. He had 29 points, I want to say, 12, 12 rebounds, 5 assists, and 5 steals. So, that was one of the all-time games. Elijah Martin – I love Elijah's name. It's spelled with an A. I think that's so cool. So it's A Elijah. I think that's just such a cool way to spell that name. Elijah Martin, if you haven't seen him play, he gives me real, real NBA vibes. He's a sophomore guard for the Owls. But you watch him play. He's got the athleticism. He's got the right build. He's got a nice looking stroke. He commits on defense. He drives the ball inside or he'll hit a step back three. Really like the way that that guy's playing. I, I'm i being completely honest here. And it's good for him. It's good for all mid and low majors, by the way, that FAU is doing what they're doing. And to a lesser extent, SDSU, obviously. But FAU, they're, they're showing that these players at these lower tier programs are very good players. They're just not in the national spotlight. So they don't get all the tension that they deserve. But yeah, Elijah Martin would not be surprised to see him in the NBA. He's been playing really good. So that was FAU versus Kansas State. The next game that happened that day, depending on how you look at it was either the most exciting game of the tournament or the biggest snore. And that's because UConn obliterated Gonzaga. They blew them out of the water. They sunk their battleship, whatever you want to say. They reeled in the dogs because Gonzaga's the bulldogs who let the dogs out. UConn didn't. That's for sure. They kept them under lock and key. They smoked them, 82-54, to and this is after Gonzaga was held to a quiet first half against UCLA and then roared back in the second half, dropped 46 or 48 points in that second half to beat UCLA, which is one of the best defensive teams in the country, and then they get the rest, a couple days rest, obviously. Looks like they have so much momentum behind them. UConn said, to hell with that. We're putting an end to this right here. Drew Timmy, who was in the running also with Noel for most outstanding player in the tournament had 12 points and 10 rebounds. You might look at that and think, ah, double, double, but this is a guy who you've got to have score 23 plus. If you don't have a chance of winning and he only shot five of 14 from the field, Adama Sonogo, 10 points, 10 rebounds. Again, you would look at that and say, wow, he and Timmy played each other to a draw. First of all, that's a win for UConn because if Timmy's played to a draw by Sonogo, then look at the rest of the teams, and you give the advantage to UConn. But not just that. Snowgo had six assists, which is super impressive for a big man who's more mobile than you might be led to believe, by the way. But demonstrating his court vision, passing out of that mid and low post, got his teammates some easy looks. They went in, they went low, high a couple of times, or high, low, high even, just on the kickback out, kick out back. It looked really good, really clean offense. Love the way that they executed. Jordan Hawkins hit a couple of huge threes. He went three from six from beyond the arc, had 20.6 rebounds. He is the game breaker for this UConn team because you're expecting him to score, but it's the way in which he scores. If you look at the NBA, people have talked about how the slam dunk was the most electrifying moment or the most electrifying play in in basketball. And now it's sort of become the three point shot because of A, the mathematical weight of a three-pointer, but then also the grace in which shooters like Steph Curry and Damian Lillard shoot it and the regularity, and not just that shot, but the confidence it gives them and the and the momentum, they lock in the motion, so next time down, they're likely to shoot that three. And guess what? If they do, it's probably going to go in, and if they don't, it's because the defense shaded up on them, and now you have teammates who have open lanes or open shots, whatever the case may be, and now they're probably going to score. So it, long story short, the three-pointers become the most impactful play in basketball. And Jordan Hawkins carries that with him when he plays because, A, he can get a shot off out of nothing. It's very reminiscent of Kyle Korver, the way he comes off of those curling screens, because he has he's moving so fast that he always lands far away from where he jumped, but he has the little leg kick out. And the same way people hold their follow through with their hand and their arm, he has like a follow through with his leg. Looks a lot like Kyle Korver. Let me know if you agree or disagree with that, by the way. But he He can heat up in a hurry. He can make three threes in two minutes. And if you're doing that, it's it's hard to keep up with if you're another team. So really, there's nothing to complain about with what Yukon has done so far. Um, I'm pulling up their I'm pulling up how they've fared in the bracket so far. I mean, obviously, they're undefeated, but I want to read you some of the results of their games. So they started off by beating iona eighty seven to sixty three. so that's a twenty four point margin of victory. Then they win by 15, 55 to 70 against St. Mary's. Then they win by 23, 88 to 65 against Arkansas, and then they win by 28 against Gonzaga. It's no secret why these guys are the ter- are the favorites to win the tournament. They're minus 125 on BetMGM, I believe it is. I checked BetMGM or FanDuel. I don't remember which one, but they were minus 125 there to win it all. The three other teams were all plus money. So, hey, if you believe in them, go get them. But well, the odds makers like UConn, they have, the, they have an implied probability of 55% to win it all. And they're also just, on top of those performances, they're number one in overall composite ranking on Ken Palm. If you don't know Ken Palm, it's a popular statistics site. And they have, this, they have this algorithm to calculate who the best teams are, and then they have second metrics, you know, offensive efficiency, defensive efficiency, all that type of stuff. Over the last 20 years, every national champion has ranked tw- top 40 in offense on Ken Palm and top 22 in defense on Ken Palm. Guess what? Kentucky's third in offense and 11th in defense. It's a recipe for success. And then even traditional metrics. They rank highly in assist-to-turnover ratio, free throw percentage, offensive rebounds, all these important indicators of tournament success. They've got it. So they look like a juggernaut. They absolutely look like the team to beat and it's going to be hard to bet against them moving forward. The other game that we had, well, we have two more, but the next game, the first game of the second day, San Diego state university versus Creighton. Now this was one of the games I missed because I had Creighton winning this game and it got off to a good start. If you're a prop better, Creighton won the race to 10 points and it looked like they had things going. Cockbrenner, Kaluma, nemhard they were all doing their thing. They were controlling the game. But all of a sudden, in the second half, San Diego State reeled them in, and they did it with their defense, which shouldn't be a huge surprise. But it was just the fact of how good Creighton's offense is and how well the ball was moving in that first half. They did a really good job suffocating them and they did a lot of that by slowing down the tempo if you listen to the game coach mcdermott for creighton said going into halftime that he thought the team had played well but he wanted to speed the tempo up the exact opposite happened the tempo slowed down even more and they were hindered in their output san diego state won this game because darion Made one of two free throws with just over a second left right at the end of the game. The score is tied at 56. He goes hard on a curling cut to the left. Picks up the ball on – don't remember if it was a dribble handoff or he just got it swung to him, but goes from basically the top of the key over to the left elbow, pulls up for a little runner, gets fouled from behind by Nembhard, goes to the line, misses a free throw. So all of a sudden you think there's a chance we go to overtime, but makes the second one, and then Creighton doesn't even get a shot off. I think it was Shireman through a baseball-style pass full-court court hit Kaluma. they didn't even get the ball off so that's how they won that game Matt Bradley only had two points and you can look at that and say that's pretty impressive that's their leading score their only player averaging over 10 points per game they won with him only scoring two points but this is a guy who you need to score if you're going to have a chance so moving ahead you have to get him firing on all cylinders and maybe it's good that you've got a week break now or just under six days you got six days rest if you look at the last episode I was talking about how the, the games in consecutive weekends, so let's say the round of 64 and the round of 32, it's game, rest, game, and then it's the week rest. And then same thing with the Sweet 16 and the Elite Eight. Game, rest, game, and then a week of rest. It's not one of those situations where he has to make a quick turnaround and get back on the court, and he doesn't have a shot. He doesn't have his legs underneath him, His confidence is gone. He's going to be able to go to practice, get some shoot-arounds in, go through his individual drills, regain that shot, and then come into the next game ready. And they're going to need him, like I said. But that game, it was super exciting. But the real exciting game of the day was Miami versus Texas. And this was a barnstormer, whatever terminology you want to use for it. This Miami-Texas game was off the charts unreal because Miami comes out and they've got so much offensive talent and they're putting it on display, but they can't stop Texas for anything. The Longhorns are getting anything they want. Serge Jabari Rice, the sixth man of the year in the Big Ten, coming off the bench and he is making everything. Did I say big 10? I think I said big 10, big 12. Excuse me. If I said big 10, I meant the big 12, the bit, the sixth man of the year in the big 12. He's coming off the bench. He's hitting all sorts of threes. Got crazy range. What I love about watching him play is his shot looks so casual. It looks, he has almost the form His mechanics and everything are good, but it just looks so casual that it doesn't look like he would be a great shooter necessarily, but he's cash money from outside you, but he puts it up. It's probably going down. But anyway, Texas goes into halftime. They're leading. Miami's doing everything they can just to hold on. They go down by 13 points in the second half. And guess what? They just come roaring back to life. The star of the game was Jordan Miller. He had 27 points, seven of seven from the field, 13 of 13 from the free throw line. And I'm challenging all of you right now go pull the tapes. I have been shouting Jordan Miller's praises for. Months Even before we started this show, you want to go look at Ride the Line by WSN, co-hosted by myself and Tanner Kern. You want to go look at Fade the Public, which is our preceding podcast to that. You want to go look at my Twitter account. Everything, everywhere, I've been saying Jordan Miller is the key to this Miami team. And he is so talented on offense. And he almost doesn't seem to realize it because he withdraws himself from the offense at times. And it's weird to say that about a guy who is averaging 15 points per game. He's a 6'6 six, six guard with a 7-foot wingspan. He can shoot decent from three, about 35%. He can take you off the dribble. He can go make his free throws. Obviously, he just made 13 to 13. He's got so much in his tool bag that you would expect to see more aggressiveness from him on, him on offense. So when he kind of stands there sometimes, it's a little weird to see. But what happened in that second half was Miami didn't allow him to stand in in the corner. And I'm not saying he was. He had 13 points in the first half. He was the driving force on this team from start to finish. But in this second half, Texas had done such a phenomenal job hounding the three-point line. I think it was halfway through the second half, Miami had five three-point attempts in the entire game. If you look at the round prior, they had taken 25. So they needed that three-point shot, or at least they thought they needed that three-point shot to be successful, and Texas had done a brilliant job taking it out of the game plan. So I don't know if it was Coach Larinaga who made the adjustment. I don't know if it was Miller who sensed the mismatch. I don't know if it was Isaiah Wong or Nigel Pack that called for it on the fly, but they started giving the ball to Jordan Miller just outside the perimeter, sort of halfway between the corner and the top of the key. And they would just clear out. They would have one guy go stand in the corner. The other two float around the top. And they would say, Jordan, just drive. We're, we're not going to cut. You're not going to pass the ball. You're just going to take whoever's guarding you off the bounce, and you're going to go to the cup. And a lot of times, that was Timmy Allen. And that paid off in spades, which I'll get to in a moment. But to Jordan's credit, he was able to get in there lay the ball up to great success, and draw a ton of fouls. Miami, by the way, shot twenty or shot 32 free throws in this game, made 28 of them. Texas just 11 of 15. If you want to look at the final score, 88-81, and say, hey, where's the difference? Probably in that. But like I was saying, Jordan Miller was able to take Timmy Allen mostly to the cup, and that helped a lot because Timmy Allen was doing the same thing to Miami on the other side. He was drawing all sorts of fouls, and if they weren't fouling him, he was making his shots. And in the rare occasion that he missed, Texas was cleaning up the offensive glass, and they were getting second-chance points. So Miller did exactly what, what Allen was doing to them. And it took Allen not only out of the game on defense because he had to start worrying about foul trouble, but it took him out of his offense too because he was getting beat up and he started to, he lost his rhythm. He wasn't able to make all the shots that he was just making. So whoever's decision it was, brilliant coaching job by Miami. They sensed the mismatch and they ran with it. Texas was slow to react. And then after Miller had gotten them right back into that game, Isaiah Wong started doing Isaiah Wong things. And I have... I have a term for the for Isaiah Wong. I call it the Isaiah Wong experience because you're going to lean back, you're going to put your hands up, and you're going to be on the roller coaster because let me run you through a couple of possessions. I don't remember exactly the order these happened in, but it was something to this effect. Isaiah Wong comes down, pulls up for a long range shot, cash money, comes down, pulls up for a turnaround money. Now he's in a three on one with Jordan Miller, who's again, six foot six with seven foot wingspan. And Norchad Omier, who I don't know his height, 6'10", foot, somewhere around there, he's the big man. And the only player back for Texas is a guard. So it's a three-on-one with one guard defending your two big guys, and Wong pulls up for three in transition. It's just a terrible decision, plain and simple. His His basketball decision-making leaves a lot to be desired. And he misses the shot, Texas gets the defensive rebound. And then he'll get a steal, race back down, go into the half court, completely break his defender off in isolation and pull it for a patented mid-range and he makes it and it's just it's hard to watch sometimes because you don't it's so it's so maddening that a you know he's most likely not going to pass the ball and b he's going to do a lot of st- stupid stuff but with that you have to recognize his incredible skill set this is an nba skill set this is an NBA talent inside of a guy who just quite doesn't quite know when to take his foot off the gas and when to get his teammates more involved. If when he gets to that next level, that's going to be the first thing they're going to talk to him because if he can clean up his decision making, raise his basketball IQ a little bit, he'll be a legitimate NBA player. Absolutely. He ha- he's had an NBA skill set since he was a freshman. But anyway, back to the game. Wong was hitting some crazy shots. Jordan Miller had just brought them back. And then when the game is super close, they go back to Miller and he just gets to the free throw line relentlessly, hits all the free throws, slams the door shut. Omir made a couple of huge free throws late in the game too. They were able to move on 88 to 81 to their first final four in school history. That's pretty crazy to me from Miami, a school with that reputation and prestige. Three of the four teams in the final four making their final four debuts. You absolutely love to see it. This is exactly what college basketball is about. Now let's talk about these final four matchups. The first one we've got is San Diego State versus Florida Atlantic, the Aztecs versus the Owls. One thing I will say right off the bat that I love about both of these teams is they win games. FAU's 34-3, and three, San Diego State's 31-5. and five. Go back and listen to what I was saying, again, on Ride the Line by WSN, co-hosted by myself and Tanner Kern. I said there's something to be said for winning, no matter who you're playing. It, it, it builds habits. It builds a mentality. There's a sharpness and a resiliency about you. And that's what both of these teams have. But FAU, I think, has it maybe just a little bit more. I feel like they're playing with a little bit more swagger, even though SDSU knocked off Alabama, the, the tournament favorites, number one seed in their region. I think FAU has just done it more, and what I really, really think will be important in this game is that they have already played Tennessee, which is statistically the best defensive team in the country. San Diego State is doing an incredible job defending their opponents. They allowed the third worst three-point percentage to opponents this year. So, in other words, they had the th- best 3 San Diego state had the third best three point defense. They allowed the third worst three point percentage to opponents. I know that's a bit of a tongue twist or something hard to keep up with, but third best three point defense in the regular season. And they've upped their game. They're allowing opponents to shoot just over 17% from three in the tournament so far. Now FAU, they're not exactly great three point shooters themselves. They've been making less than 32% of their threes in this tournament. But to me, That's an indication that they don't need the three ball to win games. And when you're playing a team that has had so much much success defending the three, I think that's going to be extra important. So if anything, I think that's almost a tick in their favor. And San Diego State, they can't make threes either. They're not a good shooting team. Offense is the weak point of their team, even though they are very well-balanced. They can do a lot of things very well offense it 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 hurts sometimes watching them because sometimes they're out of control sometimes you can just tell that the lack of skill and specifically the lack of shooting is there what the reason they were able to get by at the end of the game against Creighton is they were making very clutch mid-range pull-up low post shots that's the that's the reason they won and they're in my opinion they're incapable of doing that for 40 minutes and with the way FAU has been playing. And again, how versatile they are, how good their spread of personnel is. Guys, I think Florida Atlantic is going to be contending for the March Madness Championship, the national title. I think it's going to happen. The other game between UConn and Miami. This one is tough for me to predict because everything in me is shouting UConn. I talked about their metrics, the advanced metrics, the way they've been blowing teams out. But Miami, what they do is they can make difficult shots better than probably any team in the country. And if you have that on your side, you'll always be in games. That's why they, alongside probably Kansas State and maybe Florida Atlantic as well, have been the most resilient team in this tournament. They just refuse to lose games. doesn't matter how far behind they go. They've got Wong. They've got Pack. And they've got Miller, these guys who can get their own shots, pack and, pack and Wong especially. They're not afraid to take the big shots. And in their, when they really need to, when they really want to more than anything, they play great defense. Now, their problem is throughout the regular season, they really didn't have much interest in playing defense. If I remember correctly, in fact, I can look at it right here. They were 104th in adjusted defense on Ken Palm. And on traditional defensive rating, they were 198th. Think about how bad that is. Yet in this tournament, Miami has really ratcheted up the defense. They're allowing opponents to shoot just 42% from the field and 31% from three. If they can keep that up against UConn, they're going to be in business. What I think this game ultimately comes down to is Jordan Miller versus Jordan Hawkins. Battle of the Jordans. Hawkins, because of his three-point ability, his his ability to blow the game open if his shot has fallen. And Miller, with his Swiss Army knife versatility, he can take you inside. He can make threes in the catch and shoot. He can guard one through four comfortably. I might say one to five in other games, but I don't really love him going against Sunogo. He can pass the ball. He, he can dribble. And we, he just showed all of us he's clutch. He can come through in the big moments. So I think it's going to come down to those two, those two really to decide the game. Also, Miami, I just I, I don't feel like they have a cover for Sunogo. So I'm not going to say that decides the game because I'm going into the game expecting that to be a huge difference. Now, Miami, what they're really going to have to do more than anything is they're going to have to execute out of isolation. And this is a lot of pressure on Isaiah Wong. And I want to make this clear. I think Wong is a supremely talented player. I think he's got a lot of skills. I think he does a lot of great things. Even though I have problems with the decisions he makes sometimes, this is an Isaiah Wong game. UConn's adjusted tempo is low. I know they score a ton of points, but they want to slow down the game on defense. They love running in transition on offense. They love getting up shots whenever they're, they can. But they're all about execution, and on defense especially. So if you've got a team that is extremely structured on offense and then forces you to play within the half court on defense, you're just going to have to come up with tough shots. Like I said earlier, that's what Miami does better than anybody. So this is an Isaiah Wong game. To a lesser extent, this is a Nigel Pack game. And we're going to see what happens. And you know what? I was going to react to some NBA stories. We are running a little bit short on time, but we're going to go ahead and get through these real quick. Let's look over at our C-Block here. What's going on in the NBA? The Dallas Mavericks lose two straight games to the Charlotte Hornets. They are now 7-13 and 13 since acquiring Kyrie Irving, their 11th place in the Western Conference. This is a team that made it to the Western Conference finals last year, and they might not even make the play-in tournament. Luka Doncic was saying, it's hard. It's hard. You know, I used to love the game of basketball and all this sob story stuff. At one, Crimea river to an extent. I love Luka. I, I seriously do. He's one of my favorite players in the NBA. But you're doing this, the money sign. You're rubbing your fingers together to the referees. You're, you're crying about how you don't love the game of basketball anymore. You, listen, I don't care how bad the defense is. I don't care about the holes in the roster. Just fight back. You're 23 years old. You're partnered by the best ball handler and rim finisher of all time, who also shoots 40% from three. You guys can make it to the 10 seed. I don't want to hear that you're worse than the Timberwolves or the Pelicans or the Jazz, whoever it might be. You can get in there, so stop complaining. Patrick Beverly, two smalls, LeBron James, and a play in which LeBron wasn't really defending him as the Bulls beat the Lakers. This is just typical Patrick Beverly. He, he ran into the lane about maybe seven feet, six feet away from the rim, pivoted, shot a little fadeaway. LeBron was near him, but I don't even know if they ever touched each other. And again, it's a fadeaway. It's not a rim run. And Patrick Beverly does the too small at LeBron. It's it's just why Patrick Beverly is so annoying. And I don't mean annoying in the you, you hate him if you're playing against him and you love him if he's on your team. I mean annoying in the annoying that nobody likes him way. This is why he commands so little respect from his peers. This is why he's bounced around the league recently. This is why the Clippers, right after they had their deepest run ever, they got rid of him. It's just annoying. And the Lakers taking Beverly out of it. The Lakers blew a huge opportunity. They're down to the nine seed in the Western Conference. Really feels like they should have been the five or the six by now, but they've just lost games that flat out are inexcusable to lose. The Rockets game last week, now this one. I don't think they're gonna get out of the play in. So seven, eight, nine, ten, wherever they end up, it's gonna be in the play in my opinion. Obviously, you want to be the seven, eight so that one win and you're in. Whereas if it's the nine-10, you've got to win two games. But they they missed their opportunity, simply put. And then our last last headline here. Philadelphia 76ers lose back-to-back games. They are now two-and-a-half games behind the Boston Celtics in the Eastern Conference with only seven or eight games left in the regular season schedule. That means there's a very low chance that they end up usurping them in the standings. So if these two match up in the second round of the Eastern Conference semifinals, expect Game 7 if we get that far to be in Boston and expect that to be a big deal. The Celtics are 28-9 and nine at home. The Sixers are 23-14 and 14 on the road. Very good but you historically have trouble with the Celtics. You had your chance to get ahead of them in the standings and steal home court. Now it's most likely not going to happen. That's going to do it for today's show. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Again, drop a comment. Let me know what you think about some of my proclamations and my predictions out there. And especially drop a comment if you want some more sneak peeks on insights as we get closer to the Final Four and then even before the championship game. You never know. Might bounce back with two episodes in one week. Thank you all so much. Have a great day. Go out and be the best version of you. And I will see you all soon on the next episode of The Sitch with Grant Mitchell.